Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes graphic descriptions of genitalia, as well as dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. New York City in the 1890s was a bustling metropolis, brimming with promise. The city had recently constructed its first skyscrapers, the tallest of which stood higher than 300 feet. Within one of these concrete titans was a behemoth of the newspaper industry, Joseph Pulitzer and his daily publication, The New York World. He'd taken a dying publication and turned it into a sensation. He replaced dense information-laden pages with bombastic, attention-grabbing headlines. He added comic strips and color printing to his Sunday editions, and he brought the price of his paper down to a staggering two cents, crushing his rivals. By 1890, the New York world had become one of the single largest newspapers in existence. But with great success comes great competition. In 1895, William Randolph Hearst purchased the failing New York Morning Journal and made it his mission to put the New York world out of business. With his nearly limitless fortune, Hearst turned his journal into something more attention-grabbing and more sensational than any paper ever before. He brought the price of his issues down to a single cent and poached reporters from competing papers by paying exorbitant salaries. Hearst had declared war on Joseph Pulitzer and his New York world. This declaration locked the two juggernauts of journalism into a heated conflict that would reshape American newspapers and change the course of American history itself. Their newspaper wars would rage for decades, but one of their most decisive battles would come from the most unlikely of places. In the early hours of June 26, 1897, a ferry passenger discreetly dropped a couch-cushion-sized package into the East River. This single act would set the New York papers into a reporting frenzy and result in one of the most fascinating and most publicized murder mysteries in the history of the world. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free, exclusively on Spotify. To stream Solve Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Solve Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on the murder of William Goldensup. In part one, we'll cover the discovery of a dismembered corpse and the race between two different newspapers to identify the victim. In part two, we'll discuss the victim's life and the newspaper's quest to catch his killer. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, 
This is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On Saturday, June 26th, 1897, stifling summer air wafted through Manhattan and crowds of people made their way to East 3rd Street. Thousands wanted to attend the grand opening of the city's first public promenade pier. The mood was lively and upbeat. A brass band oompahed their breath away, their sound echoing across the East River. Yet as the band held the people's rapt attention, the river held something far more interesting. Approximately eight blocks north, the rising tide carried a strange package bobbing on the water. The package was about the size of a sofa cushion and was tightly wrapped in a flashy red and gold oilcloth. It was heavy but floated despite its weight, and it was tied together by several cords of white rope. The package was meant to be discarded and forgotten, but instead, its deep red coloring had caught the eyes of four preteen boys playing on the unused East 11th Street Pier. One of the boys leapt into the water and swam towards the package. He grasped it by its ropes and pulled it back towards the pier. Once he reached the shore, he hauled it atop the rocks, struggling against its weight. His friends rushed to help him and then stared at the package in wonder. All sorts of treasures could show up in the East River. Silverware, clothing, jewelry, furniture, anything was possible in New York. This package had the potential to be the greatest treasure they'd ever found. Filled with excitement, one of the boys pulled out a switchblade and sawed at the rope. As he cut, his blade slipped on the wet cord, plunging through the oilcloth into the package itself. The slip left a thin hole in the wrappings, and the boys watched with surprise as torpid blood oozed out. Their eyes went wide as they stared at each other in astonishment. The boys were not repulsed, they were thrilled. A bleeding package wrapped in rope could only be one thing, a fresh side of pork, lost by some poor butcher in the river. They were going to feast like kings. They sliced through the rope with renewed vigor. They peeled back the oilcloth to reveal a layer of burlap, and then they peeled back the burlap to reveal coarse brown paper. Underneath the paper, they found pink flesh, only it wasn't from a pig. Instead, the package contained a man's muscular arms and his torso, severed off just below the ribs. The boys had not discovered a feast. They had uncovered a murder. After moments of stunned silence, the boys panicked. They tossed their bloody knife into the river, then spent the next half hour arguing about what to do next. Drawn to the noise, a patrolman approached the boys and asked them what they'd found. Terrified, the boys told them their story, and the patrolman told them to settle down. 
He'd call to have this body taken to the morgue and the boys would be free to go. The patrolman hauled the body off of the beach and onto the pier, then waited for two of his fellow detectives to arrive. Oof, that's a nasty one. Wonder what happened to him? Probably just those med students again, up to their old tricks. <laughs> if that's true, they really upped the ante this time. Remember when they left that finger in that professor's cigar box? <laughs> Classic gag. Although, in my opinion, this tops that any day. Sure, sure. Except this time, the joke's on us. Oh, we're the ones who've got to watch this stiff. At least it gives us a good excuse to smoke. The policemen were largely unimpressed by their gruesome find, as med students had been known to leave amputated body parts in strange places all around the city. They were confident that this package was merely a prank and that the coroner would settle any worries soon. After several hours, the torso was picked up and hauled off to Bellevue Morgue, the only morgue in Manhattan and a dark and dreary place. Each day, the morgue would see 20 to 30 new bodies, all laid out on marble slabs. Cold, misty water ran over the slabs in an attempt to preserve the bodies and spook away the flies that were always buzzing around. Just as the scent of death attracted flies, the drama of death attracted reporters from every major publication in the city. For meager bribes, unscrupulous morgue attendants allowed reporters to wander the halls freely, reporting on any corpse they thought might make a good story. When the dismembered torso finally reached its own slab, reporters had much the same reaction as the police officers who first discovered it. This gruesome find was simply the result of a med student prank. Nothing worth writing about. This would all change when the city's medical examiner, Dr. George Dow, and Bellevue's morgue superintendent, Dr. Thomas Murphy, spotted the torso on their evening rounds. They took a closer look at the body and noted everything they found. The torso was muscular with soft white skin. The head had been severed and the cut through the neck was rough and ragged. The lower half of the torso had been cut through much more cleanly, just below the fifth rib. Suspiciously, a four-inch horseshoe-shaped slice of skin had been removed from the chest, just above the heart. It was an odd mark that seemed purposeless at first glance. After seeing all they could on the surface, the doctors began to take some measurements. Even though they only had the torso, they measured the man's length from fingertip to fingertip. If the man had been in one piece, he would have stood around 5 feet 11 inches tall. They estimated that he had weighed 190 pounds while alive and had been 35 years old at the time of his death. Finally, they noticed that while he had a musculature of a heavy laborer, the man's hands were soft and supple. He lacked the rough calluses that most physical workers gained in their work, and his nails were well manicured. Also significantly, his fingers were pliable and easy to bend, indicating that rigor mortis had yet to affect the body. There is a mystery here. Indeed, no medical student would have done this. A saw and not a knife was used to sever the head and the body. And if I might add, the removal of the flesh from the breast has a very suspicious look. 
If I might venture a guess, I would say it was meant to remove a distinctive tattoo that might have helped us identify the body. Yes, it's all very suspicious. I believe this was a murder, and in my professional opinion, the man of which this formed a part of was alive 24 hours ago. Dr. Dow's declaration had stunned the room, and many of the reporters present knew they had just struck gold. Several rushed their notes to the presses immediately, while others stayed behind to witness the autopsy. A closer examination of the corpse found several more interesting details. The arms had boot-shaped bruises, indicating the victim had been pinned to the ground or kicked. Some of his fingernails held blood, likely from a struggle against his attacker. His left hand also had a glancing cut, likely from a knife. When they took a finer look at the flesh that had been removed from the chest, they found two deep stab wounds. One pierced downwards, just above his left collarbone. The other had plunged just between his fifth and sixth ribs, stabbing directly into his heart. Examination of the wounds showed that blood had flowed into them, indicating the victim had been stabbed while he was still alive. In contrast, the cuts at his neck and bottom of his torso had been done post-mortem. It seemed he had been stabbed to death and dismembered afterward for easy disposal. Also interestingly, the stab wounds did not have any cloth fibers within them. This meant the victim had been naked when killed and likely lying on his back. Perhaps he had been murdered while asleep or even in the midst of an intimate act. And yet, even though the autopsy could tell them so much about their victim's tragic fate, there were still many unanswered questions. Who exactly was this man, and where was the rest of his body? It was only a matter of time before they found their answers. Coming up, a second gruesome discovery provides a clearer piece of the puzzle. And now, back to the story. On June 26, 1897, the upper half of a human torso was discovered bound in cloth floating in the East River. By that evening, New York City's chief medical examiner had declared the torso the victim of a murder. The first step towards solving the crime would be to identify the victim, but his head, lower torso, and legs were all missing. Dismemberment always proved fascinating to the public, and these still missing limbs made this a murder mystery ripe for the sensational yellow journalism of the time. The next morning, Sunday the 27th, both William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal and Joseph Pulitzer's New York World dedicated front-page space to the piecemeal corpse. Both declared it a horrific and intriguing case. Both wondered where the rest of the body could be. Yet while the papers were speculating, Detective Arthur Carey in the Highbridge Station House in the Bronx had the answer. Hmm. This thing's got to weigh at least 100 pounds. Where'd you say you found it? My boy spotted it in a ravine in Ogden's Woods, nearby the Harlem River. It's a real wild place. There's only one house for a whole quarter mile up there. You said it smelled bad. I'm not smelling anything right now. That's because it's tightly wrapped. If you pull on that oilcloth, you'll see. Smells like murder. Thanks for bringing this in, Mr. Meyer. 
but you should get your kids out of here. I don't think they want to see what's inside. As Detective Carey opened the package, he found it was also wrapped in a layer of burlap and a layer of brown paper. Inside, he found the lower torso of a man sawed apart from the rest of his body. Its top was cut just below the ribs, and the bottom was sliced off just below the hip joints. As such, the legs were not attached, but the man's genitals were fully intact. Carey thought little of the wounds or genitals at the time. Instead, he focused his attention on a small clue stuck to the victim's back. He peeled off a sticky piece of brown paper with a distinct ink stamp. The stamp read, Kugler and Woolens, and with that, Carey had his first lead. Carey bagged the stamp and cut off a piece of the oilcloth for reference. Then he made his way across the Harlem River into the big city. Kugler and Woolens was a hardware store in the predominantly German Bowery district of Manhattan. The district was known for its many great drinking venues and its incredibly competent business owners. Ernst Kugler, co-owner of Kugler and Woolens, was no different. Mr. Kugler, I'm Detective Carey. I used to be stationed near here a few years back. Bought a hammer once. Uh, yes, yes, I remember your face, Detective. Are you here to get the hammer repaired? <laughs> nah, hammer's still going strong. I'm here to ask if you recognize this. Oof, that paper smells like death. Did you find it in a dead body or something? On a dead body, yeah. Ugh. Well, that's our stamp and serial number. Let me check the ledger. Looks like the paper was used to wrap a saw. Hmm, makes sense. Any chance you know who bought it? Hmm, sadly, no. It was purchased with cash. Fair enough. I got one last question for you, Ernst. You know where I can find the person who sells oil cloth like this? Oh, that smells brand new. Did it come from the same body? Yeah, a couple of layers of wrapping between them. Ah, I recommend you check with Henry Feuerstein on Stanton. Very professional wholesaler. Oh, thanks, Kugler. Maybe I'll stop by and buy something sometime. Carey made his way three blocks north to Henry Feuerstein's warehouse. An Orthodox Jewish immigrant from Hungary, Feuerstein was also working hard on Sunday and more than willing to help Detective Carey track down his lead. A.F. Buchanan and Sons, Diamond B, number 3220. People hate that fabric. I haven't sold any in the last four months. So it should be easy to track down, right? Relatively, yes. I've only sold it to 50 or so stores. 50? And you say people hate it. Oh, yeah. Here, check the ledgers. Goodness. I have to go to all five boroughs. it take ages for me to make all these stops. On your own, yes. But I've got news for you, friend. You're not the only one looking for that fabric. Really? Oh, reporters. You know which paper? They were with the journal. That madman Hearst is paying over a dozen men to track down leads. They'll probably have their answers in a matter of days. Well, I guess I gotta hope I get lucky and find it first. For the police department's sake, I hope so too. Not only was Carey in a race against the reporters, he was already losing. 
and the newspapers had been ridiculing the police department for months, claiming the department was corrupt, bloated, and grossly ineffectual. Carrie had to admit they were right. After all, he had been demoted to the Bronx station because he'd made friends with the wrong boss. But even if the department wasn't corrupt, it would be hard for their detectives to compete with the reporters. Reporters at least got paid extra for finding answers quickly. As Detective Carey began his slow slog chasing down cloth salesmen, one reporter began his own hunt for clues back at the city morgue. 19-year-old Ned Brown stood in the morgue staring at the body, its two discovered pieces having been placed back together on the slab. The pieces fit perfectly, proving that they had been from the same victim, and hinting that perhaps that victim's head and legs were still out there, wrapped in their own gaudy layers of paper and cloth. Ned was a student at NYU who longed to be a reporter and had taken a summer job at Pulitzer's World to get his first taste of the work. As a student, Ned had yet to be assigned to a big story, but as luck would have it, he was the only reporter in the office when the body's lower torso had arrived at the morgue. The paper's editor ordered him to report on anything the medical examiner said about the lower torso. Ned agreed, determined to make his mark on the case. Given the full size of the body, I believe it is safe to say this would have taken great strength and many hours to accomplish. It was likely done in a secluded location over a lengthy period of time. Do you think it could have been more than one killer? I'm sorry, young man. Who are you? Ned Brown, New York World. Do you think the killer acted alone? No. I believe at least two people were involved in the slaying. At the very least, someone would have had to hold the arms up, while the other sawed through the torso. Any idea who the killers might be? I cannot give you names. Only theories based on the evidence. Based on marks near the shoulder, the saw used seems to be about one millimeter wide about the width of a butcher's saw. Furthermore, the leg stumps seem to have been boiled. This means they had a basin large enough to fill with water and conductive enough to heat with fire. The stumps were either boiled in an attempt to dispose of the body or an attempt to cook it. Cannibals? You're really suggesting cannibals did this? Cannibal butchers, to be precise. Any idea who the victim might be? Well, based on his genitalia, he may have been Hebrew, but outside of discovering his severed head, it would be impossible to identify him. While the doctors were convinced the victim's name could not be discovered, Ned was not so sure. The cannibal butcher theory was sure to make his editor happy, but to Ned, another piece of evidence was gnawing at the back of his mind. The victim's body was incredibly muscular. It was clear the man made his living through some form of physical labor. Yet his palms were soft and free from calluses. Ned knew he had seen hands like those before. But where? If Ned could only remember where he'd seen those hands, he knew he could crack the case. But his hunch would have to wait. As he pondered the situation, the story would continue to develop without him. Facing a wave of public pressure, the police began bringing the families and friends of any missing persons to the morgue in an attempt to identify the body. 
Dozens of men and women came streaming through the room, gawking at the corpse, each with their own story to tell. Some realized in an instant the body did not belong to anyone they knew. Others required careful consideration of the body's many scars and foibles before they could conclude that they did not know the headless man. At the same time, entire groups of people would claim the victim was their late husband or brother or friend. Unfortunately, none of these people could substantiate their claims. It seemed even a parade of purveyors could not solve this case, but that made little difference to the papers and the men who ran them. While Joseph Pulitzer had plucky little Ned Brown running through the streets, William Randolph Hearst had an entire squadron of men he called his wrecking crew, haphazardly dashing all throughout the city. They would fly across the neighborhoods on bicycles, racing to gather all the information that they could. The wrecking crew visited the sites where the body parts were found, the homes of people who claimed to have identified the victim, and police detectives all throughout the city, just to make sure they didn't have any leads the reporters had missed. Hearst wanted as much information on the murder as he could possibly acquire, factual or otherwise. While his morning New York journal was already known for being sensational, Hearst had just launched his evening journal, a paper meant to be even more sensational, even more dramatic, even more eye-catching than any paper had ever been before. The story of a madman hacking a person to pieces and dumping them throughout the city was the perfect event to cover the evening journal's front page. He printed diagrams and recreations of the crime scenes, and story after story filled with wild speculation. It was to be Hearst's masterstroke. Unfortunately for him, his competition had a plan of their own. Mr. Hearst, I've got urgent news. Our spies at The World have a headline you're going to want to read. Well, hand it over. The World will pay $500 in gold for the correct solution of the mystery. $500? That's a year's salary for most people. Oh, Pulitzer's a smooth operator, that's for sure. Sir, that reward is being published at 4 o'clock today. Today? Well, they'll beat us to the punch, but we'll beat them in the end. Make sure our 5 o'clock paper has our own offer. $1,000 to anyone who brings me the solution. Nobody will go to Pulitzer after that. Sir, it's already mid-afternoon. We've printed half the stock. We'll print them again and get them out tonight. Pulitzer will have this dead body over my dead body, understand? Yes, sir. The river torso had only been reported on the day before, and it had already ignited a whirlwind of activity in the city's newspapers. It was set to bring Pulitzer's and Hearst's newspaper wars into a madcap frenzy, each attempting to outdo the other every step of the way. The next day, Tuesday, June 29th, Both papers would receive all sorts of letters from interested parties trying to solve the case and win the reward. One letter even accused the journal itself of purchasing a cadaver and spreading it across the city, purely for the publicity. Hearst and his men had a good laugh and printed the letter in their paper. He knew that would only generate more publicity, and his next plan would top even that. For the first time in human history, Hearst planned to have a full-color print paper release on a Tuesday afternoon. He had an artist fully recreate the color and pattern of the red and gold oilcloth, and planned to have his front page claim this was the single most important clue in the entire case. 
When the color page was released on Tuesday the 29th, the people of New York were stunned by its brilliance and convinced the oilcloth was the key to solving the case. Yet while Hearst's journal focused all its attention on the oilcloth, the world's rambunctious 19-year-old reporter Ned Brown was focused on something else entirely. He had finally remembered where he had seen such soft hands before. And on that Tuesday morning, his memory was about to bust the case wide open. We'll identify the body after this. And now, back to the story. On Saturday, June 26, 1897, the upper torso of a dismembered man was found wrapped in oilcloth floating in the East River. By Tuesday the 29th, New York City's leading newspapers had turned a grisly murder into the investigative event of the century. William Randolph Hearst and his New York Journal had put a near unlimited amount of resources into identifying the victim, but Joseph Pulitzer's New York World would be the first to crack the case, all thanks to a wiry 19-year-old reporter named Ned Brown. Ned had found the victim's muscular frame and soft hands particularly familiar. It was an odd combination people rarely saw those days, and by Tuesday... Ned had remembered the only place he had ever seen such a thing, the Turkish baths in Midtown. The Turkish baths employed many masseurs, all of whom had particularly toned physiques and soft hands, making their massages the most relaxing in the city. The baths were a popular place for people to work off a hangover. Ned himself had spent many a late night and early morning at the Murray Hill Baths on 42nd Street. The Murray Hill Baths claimed to be the most handsome and perfect baths in the world. As Ned stepped inside to see its polished white marble floors and luxuriously long swimming pool, he found it difficult to disagree. Ned knew no other reporter would have thought to look here, so he decided to keep his investigation as discreet as possible. He ordered a massage and waited until he was good and relaxed to ask a seemingly harmless question. Feels great. I'm glad I was able to get a slot. Seems like you guys are awfully busy today. We are the best baths in town. We're busy every day. Hey, I don't disagree. It just seems like a longer line than usual. Maybe someone's slacking off? Not showing up for work lately? Oh, yeah. Good old Bill. Bill? I think I know a Bill who works here. What's his last name? Bill Goldensup. Goldensup. Nah... Not the bill I know. But what's with this bill, anyway? Leaving you all to pick up his slack. Right? He took Friday off because he was going to look at a house in the country with his girl. Or so he said. Somebody called him in sick on Sunday, and he hasn't been back since. Drunk someplace, of course. Bill, Bill, Bill. I must have seen him around here, but I can't place him in my mind. He's built just like a big Dutchman. He has the upper half of a woman tattooed all over his chest. Oh yeah, that's the guy, huh? Has anybody gone to his place, tracked him down, and told him off? No one knows exactly where he lives, but he's somewhere in the German neighborhood near 33rd and 9th. There'd be no point in putting in the effort, though. Next time he comes in, 
They'll just tell him he's fired. Even though he was in the middle of a relaxing massage, Ned could feel his heart racing. Bill Goldensup, the missing masseur, may very well have been the man on the slab, and Ned was the first to figure it out. Goldensup had gone missing on Friday, the day before the torso was found. Somebody else had called in sick for him on Sunday, and he hadn't been seen since. He had the right build, and to top it all off, he had a distinctive tattoo on his chest, right where the flesh had been skinned from the corpse. Ned was confident William Bill Goldensup was his John Doe, but he had to be sure. Once his massage was over, he made his way to 33rd and 9th. He found the nearest bar and spoke to the bartender, pretending to be an old friend of Bill's. Hey, quick question for you. I'm looking for my old buddy, Willie. You seen him around lately? Willie? Got a last name? Goldensup. Oh, William. Yeah, he hasn't been around the past couple of days. Any idea where I might find him? Mm, he lives with his landlady in the apartment above Werner's drugstore, down the block. He's probably just with her. She got plenty of cash. She treats him good. He's a hot sketch. Always after the dames. <laughs> you bet. Ned was ecstatic. Even the bartender hadn't seen Goldensup for days, and he had been shacking up with his landlady. Goldensup's co-workers said he'd first taken the day off to see a house in the country with his girl. Perhaps Goldensup had wound up in a fatal love triangle and met his end at her husband's hands. Ned needed to investigate the apartment, and he needed to investigate this woman, but he would have to change tactics first. If Goldensup had been murdered by his lover's husband and she had yet to report it, she might have had something to do with the murder as well. And if Ned came around directly asking about a missing man, she might realize he was on to her. She might try to run away and the trail would go cold. Thinking quickly, he returned to the world's headquarters and made a request to his editor. I need $10. $10? What do you need that kind of money for? I'm going to buy some really fancy soap. Soap that costs 25 cents a bar. I'm not just going to give you money to buy fancy soap. Look, it's for... I think I've cracked the case of the cut-up in the morgue. I think I've found his name, and I think I've found his killer. I just have to get his lady to let me into his old apartment so I can prove it. By giving her soap? By selling her soap. If I sell 25 cents soap for 5 cents a bar, there isn't a woman in the world who would turn down that deal. <laughs> You're a sly one, Ned. Fine. Here's your $10. Now get out there and find your killer. With his plan fully funded, Ned rushed out to the fanciest soap store he could find and stuffed his suitcase full of 25-cent bars. He returned to the tenement buildings in Golden Sup's old neighborhood that same afternoon, soap in hand. To truly sell his soap salesman character, Ned went door-to-door selling soap to any woman who wanted to buy. Most women in that area were housewives, and as soon as they heard of Ned Brown's great deal on soap, they were leaning out their windows and telling their neighbors all about it. Every woman in a five-block area heard about Ned's soap, and as the sun started to lower in the sky, Ned only had two bars of soap left. He was finally ready to put his plan into action. Ned made his way to Werner's drugstore, then climbed the rickety metal steps up to the second-floor apartment. A brass nameplate was placed in the center of the apartment door that read, 
Augusta Knack, licensed midwife. Ned smirked. The city of New York didn't issue licenses to midwives. Usually when a midwife lied about their credentials, they didn't deal in live births at all. Instead, they sold something else entirely. But that wasn't Ned's business right now. He had come to Goldensup's apartment to find Goldensup, or the people who had killed him. He raised his hand and knocked on the door. A woman answered. She looked to be in her upper 30s and had long, dark brown hair. Even though she wasn't beautiful, she had a strange way about her that exuded an air of sensuality, and in turn, an air of danger. Evening, ma'am. If you love soap, I have quite the deal. Save the spiel. Just give me the soap now. Unfortunately, I'm all sold out. But for you, I do have two bars left. I just need a testimonial for my next ad. A testimonial? If you could give the soap a trial now, while I wait, I'd be glad to let you have one. All right. Give me the soap. Ned handed her a bar of soap, and she gestured him inside. As she made her way to the bathroom sink... Ned took in a full view of the apartment and was not disappointed. Augusta's place looked like she was in the process of moving out. Things were disordered, rugs were rolled up, and boxes were all around. As Augusta washed her hands in the other room, Ned kept his sales pitch going. Really feel the soap. Smell the fragrance. Let it sit on your skin, softly caressing your senses. He was trying to stall so he could find something small, anything at all connecting Goldensup to this apartment. If he could find something worth printing in the paper, he would surely be rewarded. As his eyes scanned the room, there seemed to be nothing that belonged to a man. But then, on a small side table, he spotted it. A photograph of a muscular blonde man with a nicely groomed, upturned mustache. Based on the description he'd heard of the man from the bathhouse... This was a photograph of Golden Sup himself. Ned quickly snagged the photo and placed it in his pocket. Just then, the water stopped, and Augusta returned to the room. This is good soap, but I do not care to be part of any ad. Oh, I suppose that's up to you. Now you give me the other soap also. Here's a dime. Fine. You have a nice day now. Ned pretended to be sad, but in reality, he was excited. She hadn't noticed him take the photo, and now she had let him leave with it. As he stepped back onto the staircase, he took a quick look at the address, 439 9th Avenue. He memorized it, then continued his descent. As he made his way down the stairs, another man made his way up. Ned tipped his hat, but the man did not tip his hat in return. He was an angry-looking man with dark hair and an unshaven face. He seemed to be in his early thirties, but Ned paid him little mind. Ned had his story and his photograph, and he returned to the world's headquarters that night. Ned had found more than enough circumstantial evidence to publish the theory that William Goldensup was the victim, and that his mistress and landlady, Augusta Knack, was somehow involved. Ned was the first to piece all this together, and the next morning, the world would be the first to publish it. But as Ned returned home that Tuesday evening, believing the competition far behind, members of Hearst's wrecking crew were racing through the streets investigating their own leads. 
That same night, one of Hearst's 30 reporters tracking down sales of Diamond B3220 oilcloth stopped in a dry goods store owned by Max Riger. By checking Riger's ledgers, they found only one address, 439 9th Avenue, the home of Mrs. Augusta Knack. By tracking two different trails of evidence, two different newspapers had managed to identify the dismembered man lying in the morgue. And yet, their evidence was largely circumstantial. When Hearst saw the Golden Sup story printed in the world the next day, he knew he had been scooped, but the fight wasn't over yet. The world may have beaten him to the Golden Sup theory, but they wouldn't beat him to the Golden Sup proof. We need an identification that can't be denied. Get the murder squad down to those Turkish baths and have them drag every one of those Golden Sop co-workers to the morgue, kicking and screaming if they have to. And make sure this knack woman doesn't know a goddamn thing about it. Yes, sir. On Wednesday, June 30th, members of Hearst's murder squad went to the police and had them bring Golden Sop's co-workers to the morgue. Because they worked in a Turkish bathhouse, it was safe to assume that his co-workers had seen him naked on many occasions. Therefore, they would be able to identify his corpse. So, does this body belong to William Goldensup? Oh, yeah. That's Bill, all right. I thought he was just being lazy. I didn't realize he was here. I'm sure this must be very shocking, but I'm afraid I need to ask. How do you know this is him? Well, that hole in his chest is where his tattoo used to be. And that scar on his finger. Pretty sure it's him. And, you know, there's something else. Not to sound disrespectful, but I do hope there's something else. Something about this body that could only be attributed to William Goldensup. There absolutely is. I just... I don't want to be indecent. What happened to this man was far more indecent, sir. Giving a positive identification is the only decent thing we can do for him. Okay, okay. It's his penis. His penis? Golden Sup's co-worker explained. Golden Sup had become known at the Turkish baths for having a distinct and uniquely identifiable penis. He often told his co-workers about how his rabbi had botched his circumcision, leaving him with a uniquely shaped foreskin. He often pranked his co-workers by exposing himself, tricking them into looking at it. Once a man had been pranked in this fashion, it made it impossible for them to forget the sight. Golden Sup's other co-workers also saw the body. As each one viewed the corpse, they all told the same story. This was William Goldensup. When Hearst heard the details of this proof, he knew they were far too lurid to print, even for his newspaper. Instead, he focused on the other details and included a quote from the coroner's statement that Goldensup had been identified. While Ned Brown and Pulitzer's world had beaten him to the victim, Hearst would stop at nothing to beat them to the killers. The hunt was on. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of William Goldensup. 
We'll see how cutthroat tabloid journalism helped catch the man's killer. For more information on the murder of William Goldensup, amongst the many sources we used, we found Paul Collins' book, The Murder of the Century, the Gilded Age crime that scandalized a city and sparked the tabloid wars, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Solve Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Solved Murders exclusively on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time... Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Solved Murders was written by Giles Hofseth, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Bill Butts, Joe Hernandez, Harris Markson, Dan Velasquez, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 